The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My guest today is Aaron Kadnani. We talked about his article, The Racial Constitution of Neoliberalism, which appeared in the Race and Class Journal. We talked about how neoliberalism has generated novel forms of racism that cannot be understood simply as residual phenomena from the pre-neoliberal era. We also talked about why it was that the key neoliberal thinkers were as fixated on defeating leftist movements in the Global South during the Cold War as they were on beating the European and American labour movements. And finally, we talked about whether it is possible to imagine a form of capitalism that is able to dispense with racialization. Aaron Kadnani writes about racial capitalism and Islamophobia, surveillance and political violence, and black radical movements. He's the author of The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism and the Domestic War on Terror, and The End of Tolerance, Racism in 21st Century Britain. His writing has appeared in The Nation, The Guardian and The Washington Post, amongst other venues. In the article, you argue that most scholarship on neoliberalism tends not to reckon with the way in which neoliberalism generates its own forms of racism and instead tends to see racism as uh, residual or, or anachronistic. And in particular, you critique the positions of, of three of the most widely cited left scholars on neoliberalism, Wendy Brown, David Harvey and Wolfgang Strake. So before we go into your way of seeing the relationship of race and, and, and neoliberalism, perhaps we could look at each of these thinkers in turn and how they make sense of racism in the, in the neoliberal era. So if we start with Wolfgang Strake, could you explain your view of, of his position? Yeah, and, and I think it's worth starting by just saying, in one way or another, all three of those thinkers have given us a kind of standard story on the left, right, that we all kind of have in the back of our heads and, and has been incredibly productive and, and valuable, I think. But the, the problem, I, I think, is that it's a partial story and it leaves us vulnerable to some political problems that I think we, we'll get into. And so, you know, Fanon, Fanon talked about how Marxism needed to be stretched when it comes to thinking about colonialism. And I think by implication about racism as well. And I think that the same approach would apply here, where we need to, we need to kind of take these thinkers and stretch them to incorporate what I think is equally central to to neoliberalism is the questions of of how it generates new forms of racism and and colonialism. So in the case of, you know, I think Strake is useful to start with because in a way he he articulates this in its kind of purest form, this this problem that I'm trying to highlight. And so Strake, in the way that he thinks about neoliberalism, when it comes to the question of, of where does race fit into the story, he does the following. What he says is is that neoliberalism is a has a kind of morality attached to it that's about celebrating what he calls a kind of spirit of openness and diversity, a kind of idea of cosmopolitanism, and that there is a kind of backlash to that. 
that emerges from essentially he's talking about the white working class or he doesn't always put it that way in Europe and he says that there's a kind of cultural reaction to that kind of neoliberal idea of diversity that takes the form of a, of a kind of reactionary politics, right? And that's what he, that's his analysis of, of Trump and of, of the rise of, of kind of far-right political movements in, in Europe and Brexit. Now, the problem is that what he's doing is, is having a very tight separation between questions of economy and culture, between questions of class and race, and that they're kind of separated into two distinct spheres. And culture emerges as a kind of space in which there's reactions to these transformations in capitalism. But the transformations themselves are entirely operating in a kind of narrowly defined idea of of economy, right? And so that ends up in a situation where racism can only ever be a kind of backlash or a legacy of the past, right? The idea is, is that neoliberalism is something that because it's about diversity and cosmopolitanism or at least it's bound up with some some set of values to do with diversity and cosmopolitanism that in fact neoliberalism is anti-racist and so neoliberalism will over time actually remove these kind of older legacies of racism it doesn't need them anymore as a structural feature of the of the society it's creating and so i think i mean there's on the one hand there's just a, a very deep kind of empirical problem there of, well, then how do you explain the fact that, you know, what actually happens in the neoliberal era is, for example, the vast expansion of, of kind of racialized incarceration, border fortification, bound up with, with forms of racism, you know, all kinds of new forms of imperialism bound up with with kind of racial vocabularies, military projects that are bound up with racism, you know, the there's so much before you even get to the question of thinking about you know movements of the far right that mobilize racist ideas there's so much about this world that's been created in the neoliberal era that involves structures of racism that it just seems impossible to explain that if we think of neoliberalism that way could one possible attempt to explain that be to say very large sections of of the voting population do have these kind of at best communitarian at worst racist instincts and so therefore neoliberalism needs to reckon with that and appeal to it and so you have this double move whereby a project like new labor for instance is at one and the same time is as you say pushing that kind of rhetoric of openness and cosmopolitanism and the promotion of a free exchange both in terms of capital but also ideas and so on but also has a socially conservative agenda has has its you know pretty terrible policies around asylum and migration. And it could be argued that those things aren't really what matters to neoliberals or or that are important to them, but they're doing those things in order to do the things that they really need to do. And that's just a consequence of the fact that in democratic societies, you have to achieve electoral victories. Firstly, this question brings us to the question of how we understand what racism is, right? Because if we think of the assumption, putting it like that would be that, I mean, where do those racist attitudes come from that political parties are supposedly responding to. Well, the assumption would be, presumably, that they are deposited in people's minds through longer histories of, in eras when there was a a more substantial and kind of structural racial organization of society, right? And what we're dealing with is is the kind of, the kind of sedimented attitudes that are no longer connected to some kind of current structure, but derived from from those legacies. So the assumption then is, is we're no longer really living in a, an age of, of structural racism, but just of of kind of individual racial beliefs that, that have have to be 
acknowledged in some form in the political process, right? So what we get into then is a question about what is the standing of racism in the world today? It doesn't seem to me, I mean, again, I think then we run up against the, the empirical problem. The other point here is, you know, one way we can think about this is to look at neoliberal discourse itself, of course, right? And and look at the intellectual tradition of neoliberalism. And again, this is where we've had a massive problem of misreading that history. And again, we, we you know, we can pursue this more later. But in a nutshell, we have understood the neoliberal intellectual tradition for all its different strands and, and different elements as essentially a tradition that thinks about economics. And I think what we need to understand is that Across all the different neoliberal traditions, the question of culture was was always much more central than that would that would suggest. You know, for someone like Hayek, as as we'll get into, Hayek thinks. You know, Hayek obviously has had does a lot of his work on thinking about how markets function as part of his attempt to justify them. But he actually spends more time thinking about what are the conditions to create a market society, which for him is a cultural question, right? And and cultural questions for him are questions about things like civilization and and to some extent race right and we can get into that and so the intellectual tradition itself is not one that is non-racial or even in any full sense anti-racist it's a tradition that is bound up with various ways of thinking about race and reinventing racism in new forms right so the third thing to say here is that if you think about the relationship between neoliberalism and racism that way you run into a into a deep political difficulty which is on the one hand, you have your movements against neoliberalism, which will be talking about economic inequalities in all the ways that we do, thinking essentially in, in class terms. But then when you come to think about the question of racism, racism is then conceived as something that neoliberalism can be the solution to, because neoliberalism is identified with with diversity, with cosmopolitanism, with some, cosmopolitanism, with some kind of idea of an opposition to these kind of racial attitudes that were individually held, but not systemically constituted, right? And so you end up with your kind of class politics and your race politics pulling in very different directions, your class politics being anti-neoliberal and your race politics, to some extent, being pro-neoliberal and thinking that, well, we need some of this idea of diversity, we need some of this idea of cosmopolitanism, we need the kind of liberal version of anti-racism that neoliberalism gives us. And so you create a kind of political gulf between your class politics and your race politics. And that gulf is exactly what enables your far right movements then to step through that and to claim a different language of class and mobilize ideas of the white working class and so on, the native, the native workers and so on, because your idea of racism has been narrowed and desiccated to, to such an extent that it no longer can, can capture how it integrates much more deeply into the neoliberal project. Going back to that point about the way in which the history of, of neoliberalism is, is very much focused on, on economics and, and much less so on questions of, of culture and race. So that kind of brings us on to David Harvey, whose A Brief History of Neoliberalism is perhaps the most widely known left-wing text on the topic. Could you explain his, his perspective and, and also the fact which you point out in the article that there's barely any reference made to, to race in that book? Right. It's A Brief History of Neoliberalism, which is, you know, I think probably the most widely read book on neoliberalism and again it's not a book that i'd want us to throw out i I think it's a you know incredibly valuable and it's been politically productive in all kinds of ways but in its 200 pages it refers to race in two paragraphs and what it's essentially to the extent it even mentions race what it essentially does is it says that 
one of the things that neoliberalism is doing is making racial differentiations anachronistic, right? It's saying, look, in earlier forms of capitalism, race was one of the ways that certain privileges accrued to white workers over other workers, but neoliberalism strips that away. So again, like Strait, we get this idea of race as a kind of anachronism, um, something that's out of place, not really organically connected to the neo the neoliberal era. And, you know, I think the way that Harvey tells his history is when you look at, at the kind of moment that, that neoliberals begin to capture political power in the 1970s, we get the standard story, right? That, that there's a kind of crisis in Europe and the US of profitability. At the same time, there's a, there's a kind of political challenge coming from, you know, what he describes as the, as the kind of major kind of left political parties in Europe and in the United States. He has a kind of vague wording about, about challenges from social movements, which begs the question of, of what exactly he's thinking of there, given that the black freedom movement was, was really the, the major force in that moment in the United States and that, you know, neoliberalism kind of gradually then through the seventies wins the argument about how to respond to these challenges on the part of the ruling class. Well, what that misses out is that the crisis is not just a crisis of profitability and class politics, but also fundamentally a crisis of the racial order and the neocolonial order, right? Like, I mean, this is a moment when if you follow the literature, both in the neoliberal think tanks and in the kind of governing institutions in the US that are being influenced by neoliberal ideas at that time, a good part of what they're talking about and focused on, if not the, the majority of it, is not actually about domestic challenges within the United States, but about the rise of challenges to the system coming from what would have been called the third world at the time. Right. So at this moment, you have not just the kind of post-colonial states that in the early 1970s are starting to talk about, you know, a new international economic order and are trying to make arguments and having some successes in terms of proposing a different kind of international trading system through the United Nations. But I think of more concern for neoliberalism is the mass movement that's existing in many parts of the world that's challenging the kind of Western-led capitalist system, right? And we're not talking about what's going on in the communist bloc at the time. Actually, neoliberals are kind of not not so focused on that. What they're thinking about is third world insurgencies around the world in nominally capitalist states, right? They don't necessarily see a sort of strong distinction between those movements in, in the global south and the new left in the, in the north. They think those those two things through together, right? Right. So you can look at, I mean, the way that Hayek, writes about this, for example, is that he, he sees the new left in the West as a kind of expression of, I mean, he uses the term savage thinking, tribal thinking, to describe the new left in the West. And what he's doing there is kind of saying, look, the new left is rejecting the market order that is necessary for civilization. And they're doing so in a way that's analogous to third world liberation movements that are doing something similar there. Right. And, and in both cases, you know, for me, the constant theme in neoliberal discourse is not that the market needs to be empowered and freed from the state, but that mass movements demanding social justice is the problem. And those movements occasionally pressure states or get control of states to implement something like social democracy, kind of welfare states. And that's terrifying to them. But it's really the power of mass movements that they're worried about. 
without the mass movements, the states, you know, they would believe that the states can have a different role to play in shoring up markets rather than trying to bypass them or, or supplement them or whatever. So what is really terrifying them at that moment in the kind of late 60s, early 1970s is the possibility that not only will there be welfare states redistributing wealth within, you know, countries like Europe and the United States, but that these movements might create a world order in which there is redistribution of wealth internationally from the West to formerly colonized third world nations, because that's what's on the agenda. I mean, that's that's where, you know, people like Michael Manley in Jamaica and Nyeri in, in Tanzania and a lot of these movements, I mean, that's where they're heading politically. Right. So so that, you know, that's central. And then within the United States, um, the black freedom movement by this time has also it's clearly not just a movement that is interested in, you know, kind of ending officially sanctioned racial discrimination in the Jim Crow South and kind of bringing in civil rights legislation to kind of outlaw explicit and overt discrimination. What the movement is about is about saying we want to eliminate poverty as a whole. We want, you know, we want to create a new kind of society in which, you know, we don't want to just think about this in terms of individual acts of discrimination, but we want to think about a structural transformation to create a society based on human well-being rather than on profit, right? I mean, that's that's not just the radical wing of the Black Freedom Movement. That's Martin Luther King right through the 60s, right? So I think you can see that that is also represents a challenge, right? So you have the neo-colonial question and the racial question domestically within the United States, and you can see similar things in the UK at the time as a huge part of what neoliberals are thinking about. What do you think explains this gap in a lot of the literature on, on neoliberalism? Why do you think there is this inattention to the neoliberals' focus on the global south. Is it a consequence of just the very thoroughgoing defeat of, of, of popular movements and, and figures like Michael Manley and, and, and Krumer and, and, and so on? Or do you think it's partly reflective of the culture of, of the left in, in general through, through that period and beyond, which has a tendency to see race as something to kind of bolt on to other questions to some extent? It's the latter, Alex, I'm afraid. And, and this is a long, a long term issue with the white left in the US, in, in Europe. And, you know, it has a basis in, in the movements that we've created in the, you know, through the 20th century, which, which, you know, the labor movements that we've created in, in the UK, for example, tended to ignore questions of, of colonialism and imperialism. I mean, there were always exceptions that, you know, there's, there's, there's been other traditions, but, you know, a large, Part of that history has, has been the idea that we can think about socialism in Britain as a project that doesn't need to address questions of empire, questions of colonialism. And, and of course, you know, we're still dealing with this, this issue that when we imagine what a socialist politics might look like in Britain today, we, we often think about the model of, you know, the Clement Attlee government. And, you know, to the extent we do that, we are, you know, we're committing ourselves to a project that an imperialist government. It was introducing a welfare state for workers in Britain. It was destroying movements that were trying to create welfare states for colonized peoples in Asia and Africa and the Caribbean. You know, I mean, literally sending in the military to quash strikers in, in the Caribbean who were making those kinds of demands in, uh, in Grenada, you know. So this is a long-term, a long-term problem. And, it, and it's um, something that I think in a way is, is probably got worse in the last few years, as socialism has become a you know something that we can imagine again in the last few years in Britain and the US, unfortunately, we've also brought back some of the limitations of, of socialist imagination from the mid-20th century. What do you think explains that worsening of the situation, in your view, on the left, I mean? 
I think because all the work that's been done by the black left, by the third world left within the West to, to challenge those traditions has been neglected. I mean, it's not like we haven't been making these points for a long time and developing these arguments for a long time, but we don't refer to those histories as as, um, as relevant anymore. Or if we do, we understand them in ways that just disconnects them, right? So obviously, you know, like, if you think about the way the left works in in Britain or the United States today, it's not like people are, are advocating positions that are in any sense racist or imperialist in, in a kind of simple way. It's just that the traditions that have been reactivated and drawn upon right now are um, ones that neglect the critiques that have been made over the years by... I mean, you know, we have a, a very, in Britain, we have a very rich history right through the 20th century of activists and scholars developing arguments to challenge that, that kind of, those kind of presumptions of the white left. Um, whether you think of, you know, people like the Race Today Collective, people like Seven and people like Stuart Hall, you know, this is a, not just those particular figures and, and organizations, but then the movements around them that, that on the ground developed you know, models of political work that could work with the category of race and the category of class together, right? We have practical models. We have we have a, a tradition of organizing in that way where we don't need to separate them, right? And of course, we can add questions of gender and so on. But what we've got lost in at the moment is an idea that, that race is essentially a question of identity and culture and therefore is, is sort of detachable from the more fundamental economic question of class which of course is is not it does a disservice both to the question of class and to the question of race to think in those in those ways yes i mean do you think viewing race in those terms which in some ways is a sort of a liberal position has then fed into this phenomena of parts of the left that you know are not merely inattentive to that history that you describe but are you know flirting with you know certain kinds of populist reaction uh, you know i'm thinking of the, the trajectory of you know certain journalists um you know not wanting to name too many names but but, but i think you know who i'm, who I'm Abs- absolutely about. i mean there's a massive blind spot here yeah and it, and it opens up i mean it opens up this possibility that you can you can imagine a class politics that essentially is a kind of nationalism and therefore i mean look even if you don't care about you know questions of of how resources are distributed internationally and you just want to focus on the national question we're not going to win by narrowing ourselves in that way because too much of our politics overlaps with the people we're fighting right we're giving hostages to the enemy by allowing that kind of rhetoric of nationhood to be a part of our politics and by setting up those priorities and privileges you know what we're up against at the moment is a very in a situation where you know the conservative party can mobilize a language of working class empowerment we need to be very smart about how we think about what we're talking about when we talk about class, right? We can't just allow ourselves to just absorb these notions of class that are now nationalised and racialized from the Conservative Party and allow that to become our language of class. And I'm afraid that's very widespread now. Just going back to David Harvey and the brief history of, of neoliberalism, in terms of that absence of, a, of analysis of, of race and racism that's in that book. Do you think that part of what was going on with Harvey was, you know, can in some ways be explained by the time at which he was writing? So he's writing when neoliberalism was in its triumphant phase, but this is post-Reagan and Thatcher. This is, you know, the time of, of Clinton and Blair, where neoliberalism sort of poses as, as very, uh, you know, as we've discussed, open and cosmopolitan. And do you think that in some respects, 
it's for that reason that Harvey places so much emphasis on economics. And, and to some extent, he's taking one strand of the neoliberal project, which at that time seems particularly dominant, and treating that, taking that at, at face value. Firstly, I think Harvey's position in terms of how he analyzes neoliberalism is a logical outcome, actually, of his kind of basic understanding of capitalism, right? Like that his writing on capitalism makes explicit the argument that, you know, essentially the kind of core machinery of capitalism is a purely economic structure that has nothing to do with race and that the system can dispense with race if it if it wants to and and still function and dominate and so what he's doing when he comes to analyze neoliberalism is is to say well that's what's happened is this potential in capitalism to be post racial that was always there has now been realized right and so i don't know that you can explain so on the one hand there's the, there's the kind of analytical basis for it but if you're looking around the world at the time he's he's writing this i mean the early 2000s I would look around the world in the early 2000s and say, we're building deadly borders that have the effect of fencing in the predominantly white part of the world from the rest of the world. We're going to war in parts of the world and at least a million civilians are being killed in these, in these war on terror military actions, something that's only possible because we've racialized the victims of those wars. You know, so much of what you would want to describe as, as kind of core developments in the in the world at that point don't seem to me to be about the end of earlier legacies of racism so much as their reconfiguration into into new forms and i would want to understand how that happens as part of a neoliberal project right i mean it seems to me you can't you can't disconnect that from the neoliberal project and see that as as a kind of supplement that somehow springs up for external reasons if you start to do that then your kind of explanatory model starts to get more and more cumbersome and hard to sustain. We need an explanation that links those phenomena to to the core project of neoliberalism. And that's the that's the task that, you know, just doesn't become possible from Harvey's starting assumptions. On the point about whether it's conceivable for capitalism to dispense with racism, would your argument be that capitalism always requires racism or, or something very like it because it's necessary to differentiate workers it's necessary to play workers off against each other and and to play different parts of the, of the world off, off against each other as as well and so indeed capitalism always requires racism but it always has a material logic to it it's it's not about a racism that is about primarily about difference and prejudice at its root right and this is where i think the idea of racial capitalism is helpful to think that through so which is an idea that originally comes from south african thinkers trying to make sense of apartheid in the in the 1970s and and you know essentially what they what they're arguing is that to understand apartheid you need to understand that the idea of capitalism as this structure that is organized around an antagonism between a kind of waged working class and a capitalist class is partial in the case of apartheid south africa because you've got this other category of workers who are not entirely dependent on their wage for their consumption like the white working class in South Africa is. But the black working class is economically organised quite differently. It's actually partially still rooted in the kind of non-capitalist subsistence economies that are still around on the reservations. And what they're doing is they're occasionally drawing on wage work and occasionally their consumption is being subsidised by this non-capitalist economy. So 
Apartheid is essentially, on this account, a way to stabilize that system by coding and managing the difference between these two kinds of workers, essentially coding and managing the boundary between capitalism and non-capitalism, right? Now, what I would argue, and this comes from, I mean, this is what Cedric Robinson and actually Stuart Hall are arguing in the late 70s, early 80s, is that what is happening in South Africa can be generalized as a general, it's actually a general feature of capitalism, that capitalism never universalizes itself so that all the work in the world is being done by wage workers. It always is something that combines with other modes of production in every social formation. And race essentially, or something like it, some form of social differentiation, becomes the way that that boundary between two categories of worker, two modes of production, is managed. So it's true to say that race becomes a way to to differentiate workers, as long as we understand by workers something much more capacious than the picture of someone working in a factory, right? It's a, it's something that becomes. I mean, we have to think about this in terms of all work, and actually, we can bring in, we can bring in the question of gender here as well as analogously a category that can can code and manage the boundary between waged work outside the home and unwaged work inside the home, right? And so that seems to me the starting point that we need to make sense of of the question of race and capitalism. And then from that, we can actually develop a much richer account of, I mean, from that, we can explain why neoliberalism in terms of its practice and in terms of its ideas actually looks the way it does with race and colonialism as central questions. On that point about South Africa and apartheid, and also the point about unwaged work in the home. So, of course, I mean, there are advocates of, or there have been advocates of so-called wages for housework. And many of the people engaged in, in that campaign understood that if they achieved their goal, if they achieved the, the aim of, of wages for, for housework, that that would, you know, effectively sort of, you know, explode capitalism because it does always indeed depend on various other forms of, as you say, non-wage work. And so presumably the logic is the same for South Africa, that it's, it, it simply wasn't possible for all working class people in in South Africa to be to be waged workers because capitalism just isn't able to provide that to everyone. Absolutely, yeah. So what what's important for apartheid is that you have this kind of delicate balancing act where you you don't want your black workers to be entirely self-sufficient outside of capitalism, right? You like you don't want the subsistence economies actually to be able to be self-sustaining. So you need a little bit of those processes of primitive accumulation to disrupt that. But at the same time, you don't want those workers to be fully integrated into capitalism because then you'd have to pay them the same wages as the white workers and give them the same rights as the white workers, which would be costly and fatally costly for, for apartheid at that time. So apartheid, the authoritarianism, the violence of apartheid is, is an expression of that need to, to, to manage that balancing act and keep the level of consumption just right, the level of wages just right, so that you can sustain that. And in the end, of course, it's not sustainable indefinitely, but at least for, you know, several decades, right? So generalizing, the same is true. The, you know, like, it's systematically not possible for all the work in the world to be done by wages. So capitalism cannot be universalized. But yes, we could, we could certainly make demands for at those boundaries to say, let's universalize capitalism as a way to destabilize it. In fact, that, you know, sometimes that makes tactical sense. I mean, in a way you can read, you know, you can read, for example, the civil rights movement almost as attempting that in a way, as saying, we want black people in the United States 
to be integrated into this kind of New Deal package of certain kind of wages that, that give you a certain kind of standard of living with certain kinds of benefits and so on. We want black people to be integrated into that and freed from, you know, essentially, you know, like working as sharecroppers in what is, you know, really the periphery of, of American capitalism, right? And so at, at the point at which, you know, capitalism finds that, it, I mean, capitalism responds to that by saying, yeah, we can give you a certain amount of integration, but the full demand that you're making, we can't realize. And that's, and so you get this kind of double response of like minimal level of integration, but at the same time crush the movement. Right. Certainly as it radicalizes more and more. And I suppose representation becomes key to that as well, you know, having, having right, you right. Know, black and brown faces in, in high places as the as the line goes. Yeah. So what you get is civil rights legislation that removes the edge of the most extreme forms of overt discrimination, but then thereafter a politics of representation, right? That says I mean there's a lot of complexity there, but essentially it's saying the problem of racism in the United States is a problem of individual prejudices amongst uneducated or poor white people. And the way that we deal with that is by a kind of public education on a grand scale, one part of which is let's put black faces in high places as a kind of educational act to indicate that those prejudices are wrong. Let's put black people in Hollywood movies, again, as this kind of educational project. And at the same time, that becomes a way of managing and channeling discontent through leaders who can be assumed to be compliant, right? And so that becomes the response. The final left thinker on, on neoliberalism that you write about is Wendy Brown. And you argue that although her view on race and, and neoliberalism has evolved over time, she also, like Strake and, and David Harvey, still views racism as, as external to the logic of, of neoliberalism. So can you talk about the way her approach to race has, has developed in, in your view? Right. So, you know, her kind of first major book on neoliberalism called Undoing the Demos, it takes its cue from Foucault's work on neoliberalism in the 1970s and develops the argument of neoliberalism as a, a governing rationality. And we don't need to get into the details of what that looks like. But the implication of that is that a kind of neoliberal logic kind of saturates all aspects of social life. And that's 2015. And we, in 2019, she has a new book called In the Ruins of Neoliberalism. And obviously, in the intervening period, we've seen Brexit, we've seen Trump, and it starts to feel like there's something here going on that can't be explained as the neoliberal saturation that she'd theorised earlier, especially if that if the idea of neoliberal that she's working with in that earlier work is one in which, you know, the logic of the market understood in a certain way becomes dominant, race seems to fall out of that, right? And so she's trying to wrestle with exactly the right question here of, you know, how can we understand the rise of racist reaction in, an, in the neoliberal era? Unfortunately, what she does is, is she theorizes race as what she calls a wounded identity. So she's, she's describing, I think, you know, quite in a quite a sophisticated way. I don't, it's not a simple argument here, but in quite a sophisticated way, she kind of captures a certain kind of subjectivity of nihilism, of kind of transgression, of a kind of idea of wounded whiteness, like whiteness that has that no, can no longer claim the privileges it used to, and so kind of lashes out in this kind of nihilistic way. And this is what gives us Trump and Brexit and so on, right? And her argument is that this kind of subjectivity is not something that neoliberalism intended or directly produces, but is a is a kind of, you know, she talks about it as a Frankenstein's monster. It's like an unintended creation of, of neoliberalism, right? What she's essentially arguing is, again, the same thing as 
Strake and Harvey, even though she's coming from a very different uh, theoretical tradition, which is that neoliberalism is essentially destroying the power of whiteness, but that that process then produces a kind of reaction, a kind of white nationalist reaction, a populist reaction, because it's not complete. Right. So it's a it's like whiteness has been wounded, but not completely defeated yet by neoliberalism. And so it leads you to the same political dilemma that, well, in that case, if if all I care about is defeating whiteness, I'm going to really want more neoliberalism to finish the job. And if I only care about the kind of inequality that neoliberalism generates, then I'm not going to care about the wounded whiteness reaction that it generates. And so it separates race and class again and imagines racism as this as this kind of legacy from the past that can kind of rear its head because it's half dead, but is no longer, it's not, it's not something that neoliberalism itself is generating, right? And I think that, again, that misses both the kind of structural realities that, that neoliberalism generates as a matter of political practice, and it misses so much of the, the neoliberal intellectual tradition and the way that questions of race and colonialism have been so significant in it. On issues like Brexit and, and right-wing populism in, in general, clearly a lot of the political centre and even parts of the right are hostile to figures like Donald Trump, of course, and the forces that, that led to Brexit on the right, a huge opposition within the Conservative Party. Business in the UK was, you know, or at least uh, big business was, was, was largely against Brexit. So would you see figures like a, a Donald Trump, say, or, or other figures of, of the populist right as being sort of composite figures that in some ways they embody aspects of neoliberal logic, which, as you say, does always require racialization, but that these figures also point towards something beyond ne- neoliberalism and perhaps it's something worse. And that's why we see the discomfort from the political centre, because clearly People like you know, Tony Blair you know, is genuinely hostile to and, and horrified by a figure like uh, Trump. Right. And so, you know, I think for me, figures like Trump are neoliberals and they represent a different strand of neoliberalism than someone like Blair, of course. But these are both operating within within the broad assumptions of neoliberalism. And I think sometimes we I think we've gotten a mess by equating neoliberalism with the particular form it took in the 1990s with figures like Blair and Clinton. And the assumption that what neoliberalism is, is fundamentally about is the removal of state intervention. Um, in the economy, right? And as I say, I think that the neoliberal tradition has always included, you know, the kind of libertarian view that does indeed want the state to be minimised in every way. But actually much more central to, to neoliberalism has been an idea of the state as absolutely needed, not just as, you know, the kind of night watchman state, the policing state, but as actively intervening in the economy all the time and continuously, precisely in order to make markets do what they're supposed to do. And so what I think we've seen in the last decade or so become much more apparent is not like the return of the of the state to the economy, and certainly not the return of the state full stop, because the neoliberal era has been the era of, you know, of the massive expansion of state racism. When you think about the kind of policing, incarceration, borders, war, but what we've seen is the return of the state as needed much more to intervene, either to shore up market logic generally or to act on behalf of particular national capitals, right? So to defend corporations based in one particular part of the world in the international marketplace, right? So that doesn't seem to me to be a, a break with neoliberal logic. It just seems to be a different kind of neoliberal logic from the one that 
we might associate in the 1990s with a particular form of of globalization and a particular form of of how that version of neoliberalism would would be governed and that particular form was only possible because of that kind of quite short brief moment in which it became possible to talk about you know a kind of us centered liberal world order because all the alternatives had been defeated but that was always only going to be a temporary state of affairs so now we're in a period where where you see much more of states acting on behalf of their national capitals but within an agreed set of assumptions about how markets still remain the fundamental organizing principle of the world if we go back to hayek for a moment so you've already mentioned the way in which there's this inattention to his focus on the process of of sort of the, the cultural evolution of free markets now as you describe in the article, Hayek was in favour of immigration controls, which at one level seems contrary to his broader philosophy, which does indeed tend to view the market economy as, as something which, although states need to intervene to, to constitute it, its workings should generally be left alone. Can you talk about that and, and about his opposition to migration? Yeah, so strictly speaking, within the fundamental principles of Hayek's political theory, any intervention into markets to allocate some resources or privileges to one group of people over another is not just objectionable, but is the first step on the slippery slope to totalitarianism, right? It's it's uh, it's the road to serfdom, right? And so actually creating immigration controls and saying certain workers are allowed to earn wages in this part of the world, but other workers aren't allowed to earn wages in this part of the world, should on Hayek's principles be totalitarianism and, you know, absolutely dangerous. But he actually takes the opposite view. And you see this in, you know, the famous moment in 1978 when Margaret Thatcher does her TV interview where she talks about how we need strong controls on immigration because, as she put it, the people are, are worried that British culture would be swamped. And uh, Hayek actually writes in the in the Times supporting Thatcher's argument. And you can find in his writing a more an attempt to, to kind of theorise that argument in a more sophisticated way. And what it boils down to for Hayek is, yes, the market, you know, the market principles apply and they're fundamental, but precisely in order to hold up the market system, you need a kind of common culture underneath it, which for him is, is Western culture. And so at the point at which that Western culture is threatened, you can suspend your normal market principles of the free flow of, of labour and capital and so on, and you can put up borders as a matter of cultural defence. So what you find with Hayek is he's essentially making exactly the argument that, you know, that it's always made in defence of immigration controls against non-white people, right? Which is, well, we need to defend our cultural values from, from Muslims, from people from Africa and so on, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, two things from that. One is that should tell us that it's not like there's these two camps with, on the one hand, a kind of neoliberalism that celebrates cosmopolitanism and diversity and free flows around the world and open societies and on the other hand kind of racist reactions that support immigration controls you're kind of you know leading neoliberal thinker who if anyone ought to be the person advocating that kind of open world turns out it doesn't and not only is it just an incidental opinion that, that arises in him from some old kind of austrian prejudice or something like that it's actually an integral part of his his theory because central to his theory is an idea of Western civilization as the fundamental building block upon which uh, markets have to be built. And 
Western civilization in his account is not, you know, his way of understanding culture in that idea of the West is as a, something very fixed, something race-like, even though he doesn't use the language of race, although some other neoliberals do. But it's race-like. It's a, it's a kind of neo-racism. And so I think it tells us something about the importance of, in a way, what's happening in that moment in Hayek is, is culture is trumping economics. And of course, when you look at how neoliberals think about borders, you do get a strand of neoliberal thinking that believes that if you open borders and have the free flow of labor around the world, that markets will perform more efficiently. And then you get the other, the other strand of neoliberalism that, that says, actually, we don't need to do that because so long as capital can move freely, it can capture cheap labor around the world without and derive the you know, the kind of supposed efficiencies of the market from that transaction. And we don't need to allow labour to move freely anyway. So why argue for that? And in fact... Or you also add that, sure, you'll allow migration, but but it'll be migrants of good quality, so to speak, you know. So this idea that, you know, we'll allow migrants who are highly educated and, and so on, and, and people who they would code as, you know, effectively being sort of good neoliberal subjects. Right. And so what is the outcome of those different arguments within neoliberalism? The consensus that emerges politically is, as you say, allow the, the high skilled migrants to come in who do not present a cultural threat, who are perceived not to present a cultural threat to the fundamental market order, on the one hand, at the same time, allow there to be spaces within your wealthier societies where you can have a criminalized migrant workforce who can give you that cheap labor who can you know can give you those market efficiencies but they're policed so heavily by their illegal status that they can't generate the cultural threat that someone like Hayek would be worried about and at the same time a global policing of movement of peoples so that you get the differentials in wage levels around the world protected by those border regimes that enables corporations then to rely on cheap labor that's essentially imprisoned in certain parts of the world. And so that becomes, you know, that's why neoliberals end up all agreeing that what you need above all with borders is is a tough policing regime. You need to have absolute control over borders, even if some of what you're doing with that control is allowing certain categories of, of people to come in. And so there's a there's a line from from these these abstract debates about markets and borders and culture in neoliberalism to you know the hundreds of thousands of people who die in the deserts and seas to the south of the United States and Europe in the neoliberal era as a result of of the violence of borders. We generally tend to think of the neoliberals as as being the antagonists of, of socialists and, and communists during the Cold War era. But the neoliberals also set themselves up as being supposed opponents of fascism and, and Nazism. Do you see a core part of the opposition between neoliberalism and, and fascism, this difference over the kind of racism that they go in for, that somebody you know like Hayek goes in for this more culturalist reading because he needs to believe in the sort of the potential universalization of, of market conditions, whereas for the far right and, and believers in, in sort of biological racism, they have no interest in, 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 in such arguments and indeed in certain respects are quite hostile to the market. Yeah, I mean, I think like the neoliberals, would, they, they saw fascism as a disaster, right? So even though you get some, you know, some quotes from people like Mises in, in the 20s and 30s kind of seemingly welcoming fascism and so on, by 1945, they absolutely see fascism and Nazism as a disaster. But their analysis of it is that it's the result of the collapse of the liberal principles that they seek to revive, the market order. 
right? And so they're saying essentially there's a, the, the problem began with socialists and communists who brought in ideas of social justice. They disrupted the market order and it was the market order that was the thing that guaranteed liberal democracy. And without that, we get Nazism inevitably or as a consequence. And so that's their anti-fascism. And um, where race comes into that is you get some people in the neoliberal tradition who would share with the far right an idea of race in that kind of biological sense, right? That's not absent at all by any means in, in the neoliberal tradition. I think for someone like Hayek, it's not so much, you know, and this is a general intellectual trend actually that you see in the years after World War II, is not so much a shift from a biological to a cultural idea of race. Because the way that race was conceived biologically in like the late 19th century and early 20th century was also an idea of culture bound up with that. The idea was culture was a kind of reflection of these underlying biological realities. What happens after World War II is that the biological part of that picture is detached and a new idea of culture starts to take hold where it functions similarly to biology. So culture is something very fixed and determining of behavior. The world divided into into different fixed cultures. Culture is no longer seen as something fluid and dynamic, but as, as a kind of quasi-race-like thing. And that's Hayek's idea of race. Now, at the same time, you know, someone like Hayek or someone like, say, Milton Friedman talk a lot about markets as colorblind, right? They believe that, in fact, markets are anti-racist for that reason. That if you allow the market to do its thing, then you're actually imposing costs on anyone who wants to discriminate on the basis of race. Because, you know, if you don't want to sell a product to a black person, then you're narrowing your possible consumers and so on, right? So they believe that in that sense, there is a genuine, even though it's narrow and and quite abstract, there's a genuine kind of anti-racist content in um, someone like Hayek or Friedman, right? They would sincerely oppose, you know, like a Jim Crow kind of policy in, in the U.S., But where racism then comes back into their philosophy is that they believe that your ability to succeed in the market is a function of your culture. They use terms like, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, ideas of, you know, the kind of ability to operate in a dynamic way in a market setting, innovation and so on, right? Like all these terms for them are not individual traits, but traits that reflect a kind of underlying culture that is unevenly distributed about around the world, which means that that most of the world can't be relied on to kind of spontaneously ad- adopt the market order that they want to introduce, and so you need coercion to to bring it into place, enforce it, and hope that over time these deeply ingrained cultural resistances to a market order will be overcome. But it will only happen through force, and that's why. You know, so many neoliberals end up advocating neocolonial positions. That's why so many of them end up supporting, for example, you know, Friedman uh, describes sanctions against the white racist regime in, in Rhodesia in the 1970s. He describes that as the suicide of the West, because what he's saying is, is the only way you're going to get a kind of market system in somewhere like Rhodesia, or, you know, is if it's done by force. And the only people who can do that are, are going to be this white settler elite. And if you just introduce democracy to a country like Rhodesia, then say goodbye to the market system, right? And so, you know, that's, so you get this this kind of, what at first might seem like a paradox of people who seem like they're opposed to racism in one sense, but then advocate support for racist regimes in another sense. But actually, it's not a paradox. It's just that the kind of racism that they're generating is a new kind, right? And can genuinely 
be mobilized in a narrow set of cases against some older forms of racism, but is actually more importantly and more significantly generating entirely new structures of racism around the world. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.